Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A disturbing surge, Dr. Fauci sounds the alarm as 26 U.S. states report spiking COVID cases. Persona non grata, the EU considering banning U.S. visitors, according to reports, and a Facebook freeze. Ben & Jerry suspends advertising on content concerns. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. and another busy show ahead. We'll be discussing the global COVID-driven online payment boom, plus the health tracker claiming it can help detect some early symptoms of the disease. It might be as easy as putting a ring on it. Well, we'll see the skeptics too. For now, I must say, stock futures don't have a great ring to them at all this morning. Take a look at that. The health risks and economic risks front and center. We now see rising COVID-19 cases, as I mentioned, in more than half of the 50 U.S. states. Dr. Anthony Fauci calling it yesterday the recent uptrend, quote, disturbing. At this hour, no surprise, I have to say, the IMF, too, slashing its global growth outlook once again. They now predict GDP to fall some 5% this year. That's far weaker than their previous estimates that I think a lot of people thought were too optimistic at the time. So we're clearly climbing a wall of worry. The Nasdaq is set to pull back from record highs after rising for 16 out of the past 18 sessions. Heavyweights like Apple, Amazon and Microsoft all hitting records as well. Technology stocks are being seen as a de facto defensive play amid all the rising health uncertainties, especially, of course, those with strong earnings and balance sheets. What about the European session? Well, those stocks feeling it too, despite signs of improvement in business confidence data from Germany and France. Both nations seeing a record jump in the past month, but as always, context key. Optimism still way below pre-COVID levels. In Asia, we remain close to four-month highs for stock markets there. South Korean shares outperformed as Samsung rose Almost 3%, a resurgence in chip demand, fueling optimism there, I think. Another notable move, though, coming in gold. It's risen to more than seven-year highs. Slight pullback in the session today, but it's increasingly being seen as a place, perhaps, for nervous investors to park their money, money amid the COVID-19 uncertainty. And there's plenty of that. Let's get to the drivers. Coronavirus cases on the rise here in the United States, 26 states, this week, reporting increases in new infections compared to last week's numbers. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House's top infectious disease expert, giving a strong warning to Congress. We're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections that looks like it's a combination 
But one of the things is an increase in community spread. We were going down from 30,000 to 25 to 20, and now we sort of stayed about flat, and now we're going up. A couple of days ago, there were 30,000 new infections. That's very troublesome to me. The next couple of weeks are going to be critical in our ability to address those surgings that we're seeing. John Harwood is live at the White House with more. John, great to have you with us. Dr. Fauci there, clearly concerned. We were always going to see more cases as people started moving around, as we got cracking with reopening. The inference, though, here is that perhaps we're focusing too much on reopening and not on the appropriate protections. There's no question about it. And uh, yes, we were going to get more cases, but we expected that the rate of positivity in the testing as testing has expanded would continue to go down, especially in the summer when more people are outside and uh, the transmission rate was expected to be less. We've seen the opposite of that. Now we see cases rising uh, to and above the 30,000 level and we see the test uh, rate of test positivity rising. And you see the reaction in terms of the EU uh, discussing potentially barring U.S. travelers. We see governors uh, like Greg Abbott of Texas, Doug Ducey of Arizona, uh, who have been pretty casual about this so far, all of a sudden uh, uh, looking to uh, take stricter measures, recommend mask wearing, things like that. And you saw the evidence when the president went to Tulsa last weekend and uh, the arena was only one third filled. Uh, and he afterward blamed the news media for uh, frightening people, but it's not the news media frightening people, it's the coronavirus frightening people. And uh, this is gonna compel a uh, stronger response from uh, state governments and perhaps from Washington. Well, we heard from uh, Steve Mnuchin in the past couple of weeks, he said, look, we're not gonna shut down again. We, we all get the sense that on a nation level, at least, the bar here for reclosing the economies even in certain parts is very high. But for state governors, as you point out, more stringent measures perhaps need to be introduced here or in the very um, near future. We, we may not shut down again. And obviously that is very politically difficult. But Greg Abbott, the conservative Republican, Trump aligned governor of Texas yesterday, asked people to stay home, didn't order them but asked them to stay home. Uh, he had been one of the earliest to lift uh, stay-at-home directives uh, uh, several weeks ago. So uh, this is a very serious situation, and uh, uh, you, there are simpler fixes that uh, the Trump administration, for some reason, continues to resist, like uh, wearing masks by the president himself, encouraging others to do it. Uh, when you talk to public health officials, they say if you got a widespread compliance, Republican, Democrat, independent, everybody out there uh, with mask wearing, you could have a major impact on this quickly and inexplicably the Trump administration will not do that. Will that change, John? You look at the poll numbers, you look at the perception of handling of COVID-19 in the crisis, the lack of widespread coordinated testing, the lack of widespread coordinated tracing, which is also required too if you want to send ill people home. Does that approach change? Is it forced to change? Well, it could change. Uh, it ought to change. And when you look at the polls, 60% of the American people, three-fifths of the American people are uh, disapproving of the president's response to the virus. There was a new poll by the New York Times out this morning showing him down 14 percentage points 
to Joe Biden in the general election, driven largely by condemnation of his stance on the coronavirus, as well as on uh, race relations and the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing in Minneapolis. So uh, the president uh, is facing a five alarm fire right now, and he's reacting uh, uh, in a way that is not commensurate with that. And you have to wonder, given the public urgings of uh, Tony Fauci and uh, Robert Redfield of the CDC yesterday, uh, whether or not at some point uh, the president's going to get dragged into a stronger response. He, he's not inclined to go there on his own, but uh, at some point, if hospitals begin to be overwhelmed, if, if uh, uh, hospital administrators have to start putting off elect, uh, elective surgery, you could have in certain parts of the country a crisis situation on a par with what we faced in New York not long ago, and nobody wants to go there. No, nobody does. John Harwood, thank you so much for your analysis there. All right, EU officials, as John mentioned, telling CNN that the European Union is considering closing its borders to American travelers and other countries to protect their citizens from coronavirus. The U.S. has the highest rate of COVID-19 related deaths and infections now in the world. Richard Quest joins us on this. Richard, a contentious subject, but when you look at what the EU has for its own metrics for nations within the EU, the United States in particular fails miserably. And that's the truth. And it's that failure miserably that's grounded the decision that's likely to be made in science and will make it very difficult to change. You can't have a situation where the EU has put in place a, a, a parameter that other countries have to be as good as or better than the EU and then let the United States in. The US rate is rising, as you were just talking to John Harwood about. It is more than double that of the EU. There is no way with a straight face you could say that the EU is meeting, that the US is meeting the criteria. So simply on that alone. Now, could there be pressure from those countries in the south of Europe, Italy, Spain, Greece, that are looking forward to US tourists? Absolutely, they will want to. But then they will have to guard against, uh, Julia, being told, well, if you want U.S. tourists, direct flights from the U.S., you may not be able to reopen your borders with the rest of the EU. I mean, that's the trade-off, isn't it? You can opt in and you can opt out. You're allowed to make a choice on this if you're an EU nation and to act alone. But to your point, at great cost, if it means that other European tourists can't perhaps drive over the border rather than flying in. I find it almost inconceivable that the EU will not speak as one voice on this. The differences of opinion that you're talking about between the North and the South and those countries wanting to be more relaxed than others, they are going on at the moment behind closed doors. In terms of the US, it's a, it's, it's a black eye. It's embarrassing. Now, I don't give credence to those who say the EU is doing this because the US imposed its travel ban back in March and did so suddenly, etc., etc. No, I don't give credence to that. This is grounded in science. On no reasonable understanding of the data would you say that the US is entitled to have access again to the EU if your barometer is same or better. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with you. This is not a tit for tat in the case of what we saw earlier in March. Primary metric, the measure of average number of new cases in 100,000 people over the last 14 days. EU block, average 14. US score 107. Brazil's 180. Russia's 80. We're in the same boat with some other uh, interesting lead countries. And, Julia, a US situation that is worsening. That's the core. I mean, you know, nobody in their right minds would start allowing travellers from the US at a time when the US numbers are getting worse. And I say that, you know, planning a trip to Europe to film for World of Wonder in the next few weeks uh, and recognising the enormous difficulties that it's going to be. But the numbers at the moment are heavily against the US and European leaders are looking in bewilderment at the current administration, which seems to have done everything that the experts have told them not to do. Bewildering. Yes, the perfect word. Richard Quest, thank you so much. Now, business boycott. Uh, Facebook is growing ice cream maker. Ben & Jerry's is the latest company that says it won't advertise on Facebook-owned platforms for a month. Brian Fung joins us now. Brian, this is an interesting move because this hits Facebook where it hurts advertising money. What are Ben & Jerry's saying here? Well, this is a big step for Ben & Jerry's as this boycott is really gaining steam. Let me read you a little snippet of what Ben & Jerry's had to say yesterday. They're calling for Facebook to take stronger action to stop its platforms from being used to divide our nation, suppress voters, foment and fan the flames of racism and violence and undermine our democracy. Now, this is not the uh, only company to announce a boycott of Facebook advertising. In recent days, we've seen brands including Eddie Bauer, Patagonia, uh, The North Face, and Magnolia Pictures, which is the studio behind documentaries like Man on Wire and Food, Inc., all announce that they're pulling their ads from Facebook and Instagram. It's all part of a campaign launched by civil rights groups, including the NAACP, the Anti-Defamation League, and Color of Change, among others, uh, under the hashtag Stop Hate for Profit, um, and saying, you know, this is a a company that foments uh, misinformation and hate speech on its platform, and that uh, they're going to be pulling their funding from this platform until Facebook changes its ways. Now, uh, some brands say that this boycott will last at least through the end of July, indicating it could go longer. Other brands are saying uh, they're also going to stop uh, putting on organic content that is not uh, advertising, but but uh, content that they've created and is unpaid on these platforms as well. Um, and so this really just highlights the uh, massive public relations crisis that faces Facebook now, um, even though it's currently unclear how much these brands uh, spend on Facebook advertising. None of them are willing to release hard numbers as of this moment. Julia? Yeah, I would, I would guess a drop in the ocean here. Facebook took $70 billion in ad revenue in 2019 from major advertisers, but it's also about the small businesses. Actually, the data is incredibly granular. It's tiny businesses that are advertising on Facebook, so it's tough to get all of them coordinated to send a real message here, but it's one step forward. Brian Fung, thank you so much for that. Authorities in China have accelerated coronavirus testing. Large-scale testing sites have been set up across the capital, Beijing. We're told there's capacity to carry out more than 300,000 tests a day. David Culver checks out one of those brand new facilities. 
Here in China, you're looking at one of many mass testing sites that have been set up, particularly within Beijing. This is following the wholesale food cluster outbreak that happened more than a week ago. They say it's now under control, but they are continuing testing in massive numbers. And you've got here 19 rows set up. This is for 19 different communities that feed into this one mass testing site. Once people have registered, they're taken across this little way here into these lines. And let me show you where they end up. It's almost like getting in rides uh, at an amusement park. You're getting in line there, if you will. I'll show you. Follow me over here. And this is where the actual testing is done. It takes about 30 seconds. They've got about 100 staff members that work on two-hour shifts. And there they do the throat swab. They then take that sample and they'll put it in a refrigerator and then move on to the next person usually takes just a few days time to get the results back and most people are only notified if they have a positive result. You can see over here this is where the staff will take off all of their PPE, all of their protective equipment and they'll throw it away. It's kept in a safe separate area and the other staff that are about ready to come on shift they get changed suited up and go through a sanitation procedure in a separate facility to then keep this going really from 9 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. In three days' time that this has been operating, they've done about 20,000 tests. This was built overnight, so they pop up relatively quickly. They will keep it going for as long as they need to here within Beijing. And they say as of now, they feel like they're on a good path in keeping this most recent cluster outbreak under control. But they are saying complacency is what they're trying to avoid with all of this. David Culver, CNN, Beijing. Wow. Comprehensive testing. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Latin America and the Caribbean hitting the grim milestone of 100,000 coronavirus deaths. Brazil alone reports more than 52,000 lost lives and over 8,400 people have died in Peru, according to John Hopkins University. Meanwhile in Brazil, President Jair Bolsonaro ordered a, by a federal judge to wear a face mask in public. The judge says failure to do so could lead to a fine. This comes after the Brazilian president appeared at several public events without wearing a mask. All right, so to come here on First Move, check out checkout.com. The pandemic's e-commerce spike triples the value of the British startup. I speak to the CEO of what is now a multi-billion dollar new company. And could this be the ring to rule them all? Aura says it has health tracking banned that can detect COVID-19 symptoms in advance. But there are skeptics who beg to differ. The CEO's take. He joins us coming up on the show. Stay with us. Back to First Move, live from New York. And a softer start expected this morning as I investors eye rising COVID cases and the challenges of reopening global economies. New data from the financial firm Jefferies showing that economic activity in the United States has regained just over half of its pre-COVID levels. We need to keep that momentum going and not throw it into reverse, of course, among alarm at rising cases. The past few weeks have seen rallies in companies that will benefit from that economic recovery. Stay-at-home stocks like Netflix, Zoom, Peloton and Amazon, though, continue to do well too. As you can see, that's the last five sessions. The best-performing stay-at-home company at the moment, though, is Fastly, a cloud computing firm that boosts the performance of its e-commerce clients. 
Its stock is up more than 40% in the past week alone, more than 300% since lockdown began. That's zooming past Zoom, I believe, as well with that performance. All right, let's talk about what's going on. Brian Levitt, global market strategist at Invesco, joins us now. Brian, great to have you with us. Markets are forward-looking mechanisms. We know this. They tend to not necessarily look at the damage that's been done, but the data and the recovery that we're seeing. Can they also look through rising COVID cases in 26 U.S. states? Well, I think in the near term, probably not. I mean, you're, you're likely to see a wayward or volatile market in the near term, I and mean, that's to be expected. The, the market's retraced over a, a very extreme bottom for a for a number of weeks and, and did so rightfully. I mean, some economic data, whether it's retail sales or or whether it's the Empire Manufacturing Index, even looks like it's a V-shaped recovery. Others tell you a little bit of a different picture. But but the reality is the data is telling you that the, the sharpest, deepest, quickest recession is over. There's a recovery in place, but this recovery will come with fits and starts and caseloads are going to matter significantly. We don't want to just watch caseloads. We want to watch hospitalizations. We want to watch deaths. Um, but yeah, any type of uncertainty will, will drive volatility in markets, and that's to be expected. What's at the price, Brian, when you look in aggregate at stock markets at these levels? I'm sorry, can you ask that again? What's, the... What's in the price? Are we priced oh. for perfection in terms of recovery here? I, I don't want to get into the alphabet soup of what kind of recovery <laughs> we're looking at here, but just when we look at the bounce back that we've seen in stocks, what are the what are investors hoping or estimating in terms of recovery? Yeah, I mean, in the near term, you've priced in a lot of the good news. I think what investors should be recognizing is that you know, if you look out beyond this, I think we all ultimately know that we will get through this, whether it's through, you know, better behavioral changes around our reopening policies, some type of medical or scientific breakthrough, we will get through this. And what the what the equity market is focused on is as you progress through this, what's likely to transpire is a very slow growth environment, a very protracted, prolonged recovery in which it takes a very long time to get back to full employment, in which case policy remains very accommodative for the foreseeable future. So what you've likely what you're likely setting up is the next long term market cycle in which, you know, starting point of stocks being very cheap to bonds and interest rates being zero indefinitely. So as an investor, I would say, you know, don't spend so much time focusing on the next weeks and you know, whether reopening policies get called into question again. I think we all suspect that that may happen. It's far more important to think longer term about what this next cycle looks like. And, and I suspect it'll be another one of these really long ones, maybe even longer than the one that started in 2009. Wow. How much emphasis and importance are you placing on retail investors? They've acquired a lot of column inches of people just getting involved, seeing beaten up stocks, believing that at some point we will travel again, we'll fly again, we'll go on cruises again and buying some of the more beaten up stocks and fueling what looks to be greater breadth in this market as many sectors rise. How important is the signal that that's sending? 
Well, I think it's over. I think there's been some articles that overstate, you know, what the the day traders or people on the Robinhood app are doing for this. Mm -hmm. I would say that largely the market has followed what you would suspect it would follow. I mean, you you bottom with really negative sentiment, you retrace higher, and then the breadth starts to widen from the growth stocks to the early cyclicals to the small caps to the parts of the market that had been most beaten up, and that's what typically happens in a recovery. I think, you know, what investors should call into question right now is does that recovery persist that continues to drive the more economically sensitive parts of the market? Or is it a return to favoring the stay at home stocks or the companies that are benefiting from the true structural changes in in society? I suspect it's the latter. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. At some point, we're going to have an economic recovery and deep value will be unlocked and the early cyclicals will be the winner. But ultimately, what's happening here is the the structural changes and shifts in society and the economy are being accelerated by this, mm-hmm. which which means we're going to emerge from this in a slow growth world without a lot of inflation and interest rates low. To me, that those are structural forces against deep value, early cyclicals, um, and and continues to have me wanting to favor the true growth companies, finding growth wherever I can find it. Absolutely back to technology and health and the two things that we are focused on and needing the most at this moment. Brian, great to have you with us. Uh, Brian Levitt, Global Market Strategist at Invesco there. Thank you for joining us. All right, Thank you. Is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move in U.S. Stock markets are up and running this Wednesday. We've got a week of open across the board. Fears that rising COVID cases could imperil the economic rebound we're seeing in many parts of the globe, hampering those reopening reopening efforts. California saw a rise of more than 5,000 cases yesterday. Meanwhile, cases in Arizona and Florida spiked by more than 3,000. Some states now considering rolling back their reopening plans. The governor of Texas recommending that citizens stay home if possible. More gloom from the IMF too. The IMF is forecasting an almost 5% drop in global GDP this year as the impact of the pandemic reverberates. And the worst of it is the poorer you are, the more damaging the fallout will be. The IMF says 30 years of progress in reducing extreme poverty could be undone. Claire Sebastian has been poring over the details. Claire, no surprise, I think, uh, that they've had to review and lower their estimates. A lot of people thought Mm. they were too optimistic last time. You and I discussed it, but a synchronized deep downturn. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, uh, 4.9% contraction, Julia, is now what's what's predicted this year. Just to put that in context, what we saw in the wake of the global recession uh, in 2008-2009, in 2009, world output contracted by just 0.6%. So I think synchronized is crucial here. When you see this kind of number for the world, you know that every economy is being impacted by this. But not every economy is being impacted the same. I think we can look at the situation uh, for some some different countries. The US, for example, set to contract 8% this year, but rebound 4.5% next year. Euro area, similarly deep contraction this year, followed by a rebound next year. Mexico, uh, one of the worst hit at the moment. Latin America, of course, uh, is one of the epicenters. That is set to contract 10.5% this year, but only rebound some 3% next year. China, though, interesting because we did see a lot of the restrictions 
lifted towards the end of the first quarter is set to grow 1% this year and up to 8.2% next year, which is a growth rate that we haven't seen in a while in China. So, so that is something uh, to watch going forward. But the reason they downgraded, Julia, uh, from those forecasts in April is, is one, because even in, in economies where, where infection rates are slowing, they're worried about the impact of prolonged social distancing that they see continuing through the second half of 2020. They, they talk about what they call scarring, which is the, the closure of some firms, which will, of course, never be able to, to rehire unemployed workers, the impact on supply chains, the cost to productivity of building resiliency into workplaces. And, of course, in countries where, where infection rates are not slowing, they're worried about the prolonged impact of continued lockdowns. Yeah, a lot of different warnings in there for developed and uh, emerging market economies. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, British startup Checkout.com has just raised new funding that tripled its valuation to an estimated $5.5 billion. Checkout.com does what it says on the tin. It provides the digital platform upon which merchants process their online sales. Transactions on the site surged some 250% between May 2019 and May 2020 as the COVID-19 lockdowns led to an e-commerce boom. Joining us now is Guillaume Pouze. He's founder and CEO of Checkout.com, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us, sir. Explain Checkout.com in your own words and what kind of clients you're helping here. Um, we've always focused on enterprises, so we help uh, innovative and global brands to process payments all around the world. Um, it would be companies like Klarna, Farfetch. Uh, we do a lot of luxury, uh, a lot of fintech, um, Adidas, Samsung. And fundamentally, we help them taking payments uh, all around the world, and we go extra granular uh, with data and insights for them. So it's a very different kind of value proposition than a Stripe, for instance. Okay, so I just mentioned the 250% increase in sales between uh, May of this year and, and May of last year. Just hone in, if you can, for me on what you've seen since the outbreak of COVID. How much of this is just increased transaction volume for individual customers versus new businesses saying, hey, I need help getting online? So we have two tailwinds. We have obviously uh, all the net new volume that has been coming with us over the last 12 months because, I mean, we went from like being, you know, a, a fast growing company, but mostly unknown to one of the largest fintechs in Europe last year when we raised the $230 million Series A. On the back of this, I mean, 500 new enterprise clients. These clients are obviously ramping up. Um, now you combine this with COVID-19. You will have obviously music and you know television subscriptions. Uh, it's, these are public companies, so they're growing very fast on the back of COVID-19. There's an acceleration there, food delivery. And I think the opposite is obviously everything that has to do with mobility, travel experiences, ticketing sales and things like this have slowed down quite drastically. So they're trading at 10% of where they used to be. Uh, but it's uh, overall the business has been very good for us. Do you think you can sustain this? Whether it's the volume of traffic that we're seeing from businesses as they're trying to shift more of their business online as we stay at home and shop more? Um, or do you think we see a petering out again as we try and get back to some normality and, and we see reopening uh, continue? I think this is, we always had this thesis that, you know, the world is transforming. You know, people call it the digital transformation. We just call it, you know, the global transformation of the world we live in. In the sense that people are moving from offline to online. I look at my kids, they use TikTok in a way that, you know, I couldn't imagine myself. So I think new generations are just used to like, you know, live online and, and kind of, you know, transact online. So we are firm believers that the world is only going into one direction. That's more online sales. 
Will we see a bit of a slowdown on the acceleration? I think this is you know, a million dollar question to which I don't have the answer. But clearly, when we look at our own models and forecast, I mean, the business is, is about to triple in the next 12 months again. So I think we're pretty optimistic about the future. Wow, a tripling of the business again in the next 12 months. All right, then on that line, talk to me about the uh, five and a half billion dollar question, then maybe going uh, public. You've talked about potentially so, listing in the United States. Why listing in the United so, States? Um, I think, I mean, any tech company wants to list on Wall Street. It seems like probably like, I mean, not any tech company yet. I'll speak for me. Uh, but I think, you know, when you work 15 years into a company building, trying to build something, Wall Street seems like the, the right way to go. Um, in terms of timeline, I mean, we, we raised a Series A last year. We're raising a Series B now, but just now. So I think it's like speaking about a, an IPO right now. It's a natural step for a company of our size. That's for sure. We're profitable. We've been profitable for many years. We're growing really fast, like we kind of mentioned. Uh, so fundamentally, the IPO is a, is a natural step, but I think like I'm not ready to kind of commit to a timeline. What I would say, though, is that Wall Street is, is obviously an exciting place to do it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be there uh, one day. As far as the Series B is concerned, uh, Code 2 was a bit of a, a natural fit for us. Um, two things, I think, three things, actually. First of all, they have a strong Silicon Valley DNA, which was something for us that was really important because a lot of our clients are in the Silicon Valley itself. Second of all, uh, they understand China really, really well. It's a hedge fund that had an exposure to China for many years. The CEO of Philippe is on the board of ByteDance. So I think it's, they, they truly you know, understand that market. And third, uh, their data science team is, is one of the best we've seen in, uh, in an investor. And we are uh, you know, extremely data-driven as a company. So I think there was just like a natural fit there. And we're super happy to have them in, as an investor. Good to know. I guess I'm asking as a Brit in terms of where, where you're listing, quite frankly, because I just want to see, you know, European talent as well rising at the same level as, as the United States in terms of a technology as well. I want to get your view on Wirecard. What do you make of Wirecard? And do you think it's cast a shadow over fintech, maybe specifically the payments industry and the sort of scandal that we're seeing? So Wirecard was always a bit of a mystery, at least for me. Um, it's a company that had a giant market cap up to two years ago, but you would never see them anywhere. I mean, we never had a client come from Wirecard. You would not see them in RFPs. I mean, we see, you know, some of our competitors like repeatedly, and I mean, you know uh, who they are, it's Stripe and Adyen, but we don't see Wirecard. We've never seen them. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, it was this, this company was always a bit of a, like a mystery for us. It's, it's hard to speculate on what exactly happened over there. Uh, but I think it's, we should not put all the companies into the same basket. And, you know, payment companies like ours, we see uh, regulation and compliance as an opportunity. You were mentioning Europe. Europe does that really well, uh, imposing compliance and regulatory requirements on people, strong customer authentication, for instance. We talked a lot about it last year. This is a true opportunity for us to actually, you know, build technology that is useful to merchants. Same thing for marketplaces that in Europe have certain kind of you know, re regulatory requirements. So I think it's it's too easy to say that there is a, a you know a shadow on the on payments in general. Uh, there's plenty of good companies in the payments industry, and uh, I think you know we are we, we should focus on that. It's interesting what you say though about regulation and the regulatory environment because this does look, and we are obviously speculating on actually what happened here at least for now, a regulatory failure. If this $2 billion is indeed missing and never existed. Do you think as a result of this, there will be greater regulation specifically on, on this sector? So I think the real question is, it, is it a regulatory failure or is it an auditing failure? 
Um, you know, I think it's a. I don't work with Baffin. We work with the UK regulator in Europe and the French one. So we have two licenses as part of our Brexit contingency plan. Uh, so we don't have really experience with the German regulators. So I couldn't really speak for this. But I think you know the the questions are probably elsewhere. Yeah, it's a really important point. Young, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, and um, keep in touch, please, on that timing, especially with regards the uh, the IPO. Thank you. Thank you very Young much, Julia. Founder and CEO of Checkout.com. All right, so to come, could a health tracking ring help detect whether an NBA player is developing symptoms of COVID-19? We'll discuss the claims with the Aura CEO. That's next. the NBA prepares for the basketball season to resume at the end of July, some players will have a new tool that could help them stay safe and healthy. The league is partnering with Aura, the maker of health tracking rings. The company says they can detect symptoms related to the onset of COVID-19 three days in advance with 90% accuracy. Although I have to say, some doctors are skeptical. The Las Vegas Sands Casino and Hotel Group is also providing employees with Aura rings as part of its reopening. Harpreet Rai is the CEO of Aura, and he joins us now via Skype. Great to have you with us, uh, Harpreet. Let's just start with the basics. What exactly does the ring monitor? Yeah, sure. Thanks Thanks for having me on the show, Julia. Um, you know, our ring actually tracks a couple of things related to, you know, the onset of symptoms for coronavirus. That's heart rate, heart rate variability, body temperature, and actually respiratory rate. Um, we track sleep and activity. Um, our focus has always been sleep and recovery, but we found out ways to use the other sensors in our rings to make them valuable during this pandemic. How accurately does it monitor these things? Because it sounds like a sort of Fitbit or a, an Apple Watch, for example, in terms of monitoring vital signs. How accurate is this ring? Yeah. We've had uh, independent research that's been published on the different characteristics of our device. Um, as well, you know, we've published research on our own too. Um, you know, we've shown that our heart rate and heart rate variability, you know, are correlated to an EKG um, at 99 and 98% respectively. Um, in terms of the research for COVID-19 in particular, we're working with two large institutions, um, you know, UCSF, and we're, part, you know, we're doing a, re- a research study together on the characteristics and the symptoms of coronavirus and other influenza-like illnesses. And the same thing actually at West Virginia University with a Rockefeller Neuroscience Group. And just to be clear, though, you're paying for that research with, with the universities and the, the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute. The, the research was done in conjunction with you because this is one of the big criticisms. And, and I know you're receiving a lot of it. They're saying, hang on a second. No one's independently verifying any of this. And it's all research that you as the producers of this ring have have interfered with or paid for. What's your response to that? Yeah, Julia, it's it's a good question and thanks for asking it. Actually, the research at Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute of West Virginia is fully independent. Um, That's fully funded by them. Uh, In terms of the UCSF research, um, we did actually contribute to the research um, as as one of the funders, but we're actually gonna be a minority of the funder in in that research study. Those researchers have found really promising information in regards, and they've been able to get um, several grants in addition. And I'd expect us to end up being a small minority of the total funding there. Are you going to be speaking to the FDA as well about 
getting some kind of approval for this too, because just measuring the change in vital signs could be a prelude to any form of illness, not necessarily COVID-19. It could be a prelude to nothing too, surely. Yeah. No, that's, again, a great question. And we've even said that, you know, in the research that it's COVID-19 and other influenza-like illnesses. Um, Frankly, you know, even Fitbit has seen this and they actually published research even last year on on the common flu, um, you know, the seasonal flu. So I think, you know, we're in a state right now in this country that we're trying to figure out how to reopen businesses. And frankly, you know, people like the Las Vegas Sands, people like the NBA, right, they're innovators and they're willing to invest and actually learn. And and it's not just this, you know, novel coronavirus. There's likelihood, you know, 50% likelihood that we have another pandemic in, in the next 20 years. And so I think these organizations are, you know, real leaders. They're real, you know, they really want to make their workers safe. Everyone is, is worried and they want to figure out how can we use technology to figure this out. And we're really proud to partner with them on that. Talk to me about that partnership with the with the MBA. Have they bought these rings and then you're going to collect the data and get a sense of of what you're seeing here? Or again, is it a partnership where you've given them the rings? Yeah, I can't actually comment on financial terms um, just because of the contract. I'll say that the NBA is actually providing the rings to all players and staff and um, other individuals that are in Orlando and in the bubble. Um, so I can't comment on, on the economic terms, but you know I think really the, the spirit here that the NBA is taking is they're encouraging the players and staff to actually enroll in the UCSF and other research. And, and frankly, we're all trying to learn and get better together. Um, I think, you know, the players are arriving, they're going to have access to thermal guns, you know, multiple temperature sensors, an aura ring, a pulse oximeter, daily testing. And, and really, I think that kind of precaution, you know, I wouldn't say let's use aura ring in, you know, in substitution of any testing. I think it's way too early and the research is still ongoing. I think the NBA is thinking about what can we do in addition to. And, and frankly, it's that, you know, research-minded uh, partner and, and someone that's willing to invest the money you know, so we can all learn as a country on how to move forward. And, and I think that's really what's exciting here. I think um, it's, it's really exciting to partner with them and try to figure this out. And, you know, we're going to learn together. And I'm sure there's other organizations, you know, and sports leagues that can't afford all the same testing and precautions. And they want to reopen, too. Um, but right now, that's not possible. And, you know, if we learn from others and leaders like the NBA working with lots of innovative tech, I'm sure that there's more we can do together across the country with other organizations. Yeah, I know I'm pushing you. We are, as you quite rightly point out, at the research stage here as well. And this is not a substitute for any other version of of testing or understanding. But again, we are sort of desperate here, really, just to to do whatever we can to, to improve things. Talk to me very quickly about what next. I mentioned the FDA there. Are you are you talking to the FDA yet or is that in the future? Yeah, I can't comment on any conversations that, you know, aren't public yet. Um, I think, again, here, you know, we've seen literally how this started is, um, you know, we have a readiness score in our app. We have those four things I talked about, including temperature in our ring, which other wearables don't have on the wrist like Apple or Fitbit. And, you know, I think there's lots of interesting research institutions, organizations that are trying to figure out how to reopen. Um, And so I think, you know, if we learn together and we provide a framework together, um, that many, you know, different organizations are going to be interested, different governments, different, you know, businesses. Um, Las Vegas Sands is, is a, a real example. So I do think that um, there's going to be future conversations. There's going to be future plans for the company and product. You know, frankly, I think we, you know, we're 
like many businesses, being forced to adapt and learn in, during a pandemic. And, and luckily, it turns out that um, it looks like some of the adapting we've done as a team and the changing we've done, and even the NBA is, is allowing progress forward. And, and I hope that you know we can we can find something valuable here and, and see other organizations use our product too. Early days on that research quest, I have to say it's more attractive than wearing a big bulky watch, but I will just say that. Harpreet, keep in touch. We want to hear it as you get progress and get more data. Harpreet Ryan, Thank you, CEO of Aura. Fantastic to chat to you. Thank you. All right, still ahead, a hard bill, a hard pill to swallow for GNC. The vitamin and dietary supplement retailer is filing for Chapter 11 as the global retailing route deepens. That story up next. Welcome back to First Move. Health and nutrition retailer GNC filing for bankruptcy. Paula Monica joins us now with all the details. Paul, retail troubles, but we could be talking, what, 20% of stores closing? Yeah, GNC is obviously struggling in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it was in trouble even before that, Julia. Now they could be selling about 20 to 25% of the stores, as you mentioned. They have a partnership to sell products with Rite Aid, but that hasn't really helped all that much because Rite Aid is the weakest of the big pharmacy chains in the U.S. CBS and Walgreens much stronger. So I think this is a company that's really trying to figure out if it can survive through uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy plan. The good news is that one of its biggest backers, a Chinese company, Harbin, has a plan to try and buy the company if there isn't another buyer that emerges. They're going to have what's known as kind of like a stalking horse bidding process to try and buy some of these bankrupt assets. And there's already a deal in place for about $760 million to purchase some of the stores that will remain open. And what about staying open in the interim, Paul? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a company that has been hit hard by coronavirus, has had to shut some of its stores. They are planning on reopening some, but they're only going to have, you know, about, you know, 80% of the existing stores remain open through the bankruptcy process because they are going to be shutting down a big chunk of them. They need to downsize. This is a classic case of a brick and mortar chain that really has been done in by online retailing trends. Just another company that, you know, Amazon and Walmart and others have really hurt as as addition to those big drugstore chains, uh, Walgreens and CVS. There's a number of names you can substitute in there. It doesn't have to be yet for GNC. It continues. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, that just about wraps up the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.